0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokmarkle, and coming up on the program, English composer Frederick Delius lived and
1: worked in Florida
0: in the mid-1880s.
1: He was very inspired by the landscape. He was very inspired by the nature of the grove and of the river.
0: We'll discuss late 19th century efforts to secure federal funding for Seminole reservations in Florida. Ernest Coe
2: was fairly influential. I mean, he started lobbying Congress and state officials. We need to set aside this land. We
0: need to set aside funding. And that became kind of his big mission. And we'll talk about efforts to preserve the historic Deauville Hotel in Miami. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In his orchestral work, The Florida Suite, English composer Frederick Delius depicts 19th century life on the St. John's River. Delius' father wanted him to be a businessman instead of a composer, so he sent his son to Florida to manage an orange grove near Jacksonville. Delius lived in a modest house in Solano Grove in the mid-1880s. Delius wasn't very successful at running the citrus grove on his property, but it was his time here that inspired him to write the Florida Suite. Kimberly Beasley is chair of the music department at Jacksonville University.
1: He was very inspired by the landscape. He was very inspired by the nature of the grove and of the river. So a lot of his compositions reflect that image we have of the sunset through the trees on the St. John's, Um, the birds in the trees, bird sounds, a lot of images of water um, in his music that you you sense he's writing about water or on the water.
0: William Shermer is music professor emeritus at Jacksonville University.
3: He looked and he listened. He looked at the scenery, he listened to the workers, who are mostly Afro-American, sing in the fields and also occasionally dance at night and just have fun. This shows up in the um, Florida suite. Kimberly Beasley.
1: One of his operas, Koanga, which we have the original score of in our archive here at Jacksonville University, was written with those storylines in mind and inspired that work. Um, and a lot of his music are, has rhythmic elements that gets at the traditions of that music.
0: Jacksonville University has an archive of materials related to the life and work of composer Frederick Delius. Allison Crawford is the Delius Archive librarian.
4: We have his compositions. Uh, we have "Koanga," for instance, right in front of me, we have the uh, volumes of that. This is volume one. Behind me is another volume. We also have a bust of, uh, of him as well. We also have a number of his recordings in various formats. We also have letters and correspondence between him and uh, his wife, um, various other composers and friends. Um, we have biographies of him. Um, We also have uh, a thesis that has been done. Um, We have Delius Society journals. We also have the Delius Festival programs and posters of the festivals, also uh, pictures of the Delius house and a variety of other materials as well.
0: 22-year-old Frederick Delius received some of his earliest musical training in Jacksonville. William Shermer.
3: Thomas Ward was a church organist in Jacksonville, and evidently he was well-grounded in music theory and, and composition.
0: After leaving Florida in 1886, Delius continued studying music in Germany and France. He was influenced by composers including Richard Wagner, Claude W. C. and his friend Edvard Grieg. Like Grieg, Delius continued to be inspired by folk music and nature. Kimberly Beasley and William Shermer.
1: He was very good friends with Grieg. And the opera, my students and I worked on a one-act opera last year of his life. We called it The Life of Frederick Delius in Songs and Scenes. And we used the Lionel Carly books of letters lots of letters between he and Grieg. And he would ask Grieg advice on his compositions. He would send him manuscripts and have him give him feedback. Um, he was particularly close to Grieg in that way. Percy Granger was another influence. Um, Wagner to an extent. But the Impressionists, he wasn't personally in contact with Impressionist composers. But his, his compositions during that time let us know that he was aware of, of those composers, W.C. Foray. Ravel.
3: He has always been attracted by nature on hearing the first cuckoo in spring, and also the common folk. I'm thinking of the Dance Rhapsody and Brig Fair, Over the Hills and Faraway. Those pieces are typical Delius.
1: His compositions vary in style from his early to his late. He definitely is more romantic early and then as the compositions progress into the 20th century, he com- becomes a little more impressionistic and even chromatic. But yes, those elements of Florida and his, the writing that he did here in Florida never left. And you can, you can see that throughout his work.
0: The small four-room house where Delius lived in the mid-1880s was originally located about 35 miles south of Jacksonville in Solano Grove. It sat abandoned for years but was rediscovered in 1939. The home was relocated to Jacksonville University in 1961 and moved to its current location on campus in the 1990s. A square piano that belonged to Delius is inside the home. Scott Watkins is Professor of Piano at Jacksonville University.
5: Jacksonville University has tried its best to take care of it, um, and it's a, it's an old house, and it needs a lot of uh, tender loving care, and uh, uh, we're very proud of it, actually. Uh, we've had people from England come to visit it a number of times. Uh, it's a well-known destination for Delius researchers. Um, people are interested in early American um, the music, composition, certainly people interested in Frederick Delius's early life. Um, but we've had a number of scholars come and take a look at it and walk around and take pictures, and every time they do that, it just always fills me with pride to know that people internationally are, are very interested in this house.
0: We spoke with Kimberly Beasley, William Shermer, and Scott Watkins from the Department of Music at Jacksonville University, and librarian Allison Crawford from the Delius Archive. The Florida Suite by Frederick Delius remains his best-known work. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture and subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. You can listen to archived editions of this program and watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers. That's (laughs) myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, in the late 19th century, the Seminole Indians in Florida were living in almost complete isolation, but that was beginning to change, right? Yeah, that's right. In fact, according to early census accounts, the total number of people
2: identifying as Seminoles living in South Florida after the Civil War and up through the 1890s only numbered in, in the hundreds, so probably less than 500 individuals were living in Florida at that time. And we have a few examples of some early anthropologists who had made observations, but most of the information we have is very scant. So the people who had survived the wars period, so the first, second, and third Seminole War, which didn't end until 1858, and the forced immigration efforts that moved a lot of these individuals to what would become the state of Oklahoma. The folks that survived and stayed behind found their way to the southernmost part of Florida, what we call today the Everglades and essentially eked out a living there. And there was very little contact, save for a few instances of, of contact with traders who were living in places like Fort Lauderdale. The Stranahan's, for example, operated a training post there on, on the New River. And every once in a while, you would get a visit from a Seminole Indian. But they were very, very weary of of dealing with the white settlers that were moving to Florida. And that's what was happening in the late 19th century. There was a massive expansion and really a state and national interest developing in what would happen with South Florida. So you know, in the 1890s, in the beginning of the 20th century, there were massive efforts to begin draining the Everglades, which ultimately happened. Canals were built, railroads began connecting, and people with the southern part of the state, cities were being established. So all of this was happening, and here you had this small group of the surviving Seminole Indians who were living in the southern part of Florida dealing with that change. And with that came a lot of friction, A lot of issues that were reminiscent of of the Seminole Wars days, but the population was, of course, much smaller. And there was no evidence of hostility, but we had to kind of figure out what to do. So the state of Florida had to figure out how to manage the interests of these two parties, the development side and the side of ecological preservation, but also ethnographic
0: preservation and preservation of the Seminole tribe. Ben, there were two men, both with the last name Co, who were working to improve the situation for the Seminole of Florida during this time.
2: Yeah, that's right. In fact, if you've ever visited the Everglades National Park from the east, you probably stopped by the Ernest F. Coe Visitor Center. So who was Coe? Ernest Coe was actually originally from Connecticut, and he was a landscape architect and designed these elaborate gardens for these wealthy people living in Connecticut. But he and his wife, like a lot of other people, came to Florida on vacation and started exploring the the southern part of the state, the wilds of Florida. And they became interested in this group of people known as the Seminoles. For a lot of people, they may have heard a little bit about the the wars period, but it was all kind of wrapped up in the broader Indian wars that were happening in America at that time. Most people knew very little about the actual lives of the Seminoles, the history of the Seminoles. So Ernest came here, became interested not only in the Seminoles, but also in the biodiversity of South Florida. And his main mission was the creation of an expansive park, what would become a national park. And he wanted to create the Everglades National Park. He was one of the most vocal proponents of the establishment of a park. He, along with other famous and well-known individuals like Marjorie Stillman Douglas, they actually formed a committee, a citizen's committee, to try and raise funds, to raise awareness, to produce publications. And part of that story is the story of the Seminole Indians. So all of that is kind of wrapped up together. And Ernest Coe was fairly influential. I mean, he was really became a naturalist in his own right, and he knew David Fairchild and all of these other individuals and started lobbying Congress and state officials. We need to set aside this land. We need to set aside funding. And that became kind of his big mission. The other Coe, and in my research, I, I haven't found that there's any relation. It's all circumstantial. But the other Coe was a man named Captain Charles Coe. He was also from Connecticut, but came to Florida much earlier in the 1870s with his family, settled near New Smyrna in the central eastern part of the coast and actually started a newspaper called the Florida Star when he was only 19 years old. But his trade was in printing. He became a journeyman printer, lived in Volusia County for a while in Jacksonville, eventually moved back to Connecticut and then to Washington, D.C. and got a job with a government printing office in the 1890s. And he worked there for several decades, but there were periods when he was laid off. So if a new administration would come in and and there were these hirings and firings, so there were periods of unemployment. And it was actually during one of these long periods of unemployment that he wrote a book called Red Patriots, The Story of the Seminoles. It was published in 1898, and this is very interesting because at the time it wasn't very commercially successful, but he's one of the first individuals kind of lobbying for the land rights and legal rights for the Seminole Indians in the 1890s. So there's no evidence that Charles Coe, Captain Coe, had any contact with the Seminoles when he was in Florida. Like I said, he was living in D.C. at this point, but he put together, which at the time, this would be considered a fairly well researched, at least secondary sources, well researched history of the Seminoles. Focuses a lot on the wars period, but pulls from any kind of contemporary sources to figure out and determine and to educate people on the existence of these people, these indigenous folks who were living in South Florida and lobbying for their rights. What he really wanted more than anything was the establishment of legal landowning status. He wanted them to have reservations in the state of Florida. And most of those reservations he wanted to be on the best land. The problem was he's running up against developers, and there's a lot of money at stake, and there are state officials who are pushing for commercial development, agricultural development along the arable lands, you know, the the, the best lands in South Florida. And his efforts are fairly successful, and and Ernest Coe as well, you know, in 1947, The Everglades National Park is established, although Ernest Coe felt like it was a defeat because he wanted the entire peninsula protected. And eventually the state and federal government agreed on a much smaller portion of that. So their efforts, they fought for several, several decades. But all of these storylines kind of come together, the Everglades, the Seminoles, into the 20th century when they essentially all come to head and they're all
0: competing with development. The Seminole tribe is very successful today of course as owners of the Hard Rock franchise it sounds like the efforts of Mr. Co and Captain Co helped contribute to that success.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think both of the Coes and many, many others, many more Wilson who produced a book called the Seminoles of Florida in 1896 which is closer to kind of an anthropological ethnographic study and description of the Seminoles. Now, she and her husband had actually spent time with the Seminoles, but you're starting to see late 19th, early 20th century, the more and more pieces written about the Seminoles, but also in favor of the federal and state government doing something to help protect their legal status, provide for land, and also provide for some sort of livelihood. Because from the viewpoint, at least, of a lot of these individuals, they were looking at the Seminoles in, in kind of a paternalistic way and thinking, we have to help these people. We have to help these people, you know. So they were sort of good intention, but looking at it now, it came from kind of a controversial standpoint. But ultimately, you're right that the Seminole Tribe of Florida today is one of the most successful commercial operations and most successful commercial indigenous groups in the world. And that didn't happen overnight. The efforts of these people did help to secure federal and state funding, helped to secure the establishment of reservations throughout Florida, non-contiguous reservations for the Seminole tribe, but you also had an internal split. And that's where we have the establishment of what would become the Miccosukee Tribe of Indians of Florida. Now, they are more of a culturally conservative group, whereas the Seminole Tribe of Florida, as incorporated in the 1950s, took advantage of some of the reservation efforts and began working directly with the federal government early on in different ways. So there is this big split. And then within each tribe, you also have separate clans. So it all gets kind of very complex. But in the 1970s, The Seminole Tribe of Florida started experimenting with what became known as tribal gaming, the gambling on reservations. That started here in Florida and has now become a staple of a lot of Native tribes throughout the country and has become a big part of the economic self-sufficiency of tribes throughout the U.S., particularly in Florida.
0: Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa, To find out more about Ernest F. Coe and Charles H. Coe, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Efforts are underway to preserve Miami's historic Deauville Hotel. Holly Baker is public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum in Cocoa.
6: The Deauville Beach Resort in Miami Beach was designed by Melvin Grossman and built in 1957. Located at 6701 Collins Avenue, the all-inclusive resort featured a large swimming pool a beauty salon, restaurants, shops, a radio station, and an ice skating rink. The Miami modernist-style hotel attracted a lot of big-name celebrities, such as Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland, Elvis Presley, Sammy Davis Jr., and Jerry Lewis. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy also stayed at the Deauville and gave a speech there to the Young Democrats. But what really put the hotel on the map was the 1964 Beatles performance on The Ed Sullivan Show, taped in the Deauville's Napoleon Ballroom on February 16, 1964. The Beatles, an up-and-coming music group from Liverpool, England, were not well-known in America yet. More than 70 million viewers tuned in, and America fell in love with the Fab Four.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, here are four of the nicest chances we've ever had on our stage. The Beatles,
4: bring them on!
6: The historic Deauville brought Beatlemania to Miami Beach and helped to launch the Beatles' career. Today, the once-glamorous building sits crumbling and virtually forgotten. Over the years, the hotel fell into disrepair and was finally closed in twenty seventeen after a small electrical fire. Florida native Gary McKechnie is a writer, speaker, and a lifelong Beatles fan. He's on a mission to save the Deauville. My
7: grandmother lived in Miami Beach, so I would go down there and when I started getting into the Beatles way back almost fifty years ago now, when I was old enough to find out where the hotel was, it's like, oh the Beatles walked through those doors and the Beatles played in that room. It was it was just fascinating for me. That this place existed. I mean, and of all the hotels in Miami, Miami Beach, and there are some wonderful ones. I used to, uh, I'm a travel writer, so I have written about Miami for decades. That's the one that they chose. If you're not a Beatles fan, you might not appreciate its importance. But if you are a Beatles fan, then it's like, this has something that none of these other hotels in Miami have. This is something that you can't replicate. There will never be another group like the Beatles. And the, the fact that they stayed there and it has that connection to history, I, I think that's a good case for saving this historic hotel.
6: Bob Keeling is an Emmy Award winning journalist and author. He's currently writing a book about the Beatles and their time in Florida in 1964. Like Gary McKegney, Bob Keeling is passionate about saving the Deauville.
5: It's an incredibly historic place. JFK was there as sitting president, Judy Garland, the Supremes, I mean, just all of these great acts, Sinatra. And then you bring in the Beatles live on Ed Sullivan before 70 million people. And and as a historic preservationist who's been lucky to co-found three historic landmarks already here in Florida, mostly kind of in this pop culture vein, I'm just incredulous to see the the state of disrepair that it's in. To their credit, the city of Miami Beach is trying to do something about it and not let it waste away. But right now, it's basically a high-end flop house for transients. And the place is falling apart by attrition bit by bit. And we just can't allow that to happen. This should have been declared an historic landmark years ago and you know, from my perspective as a historic preservationist, we gotta do all we can to save it. That's part of this mission of, of writing the book would be drawing attention to this incredibly historic place.
6: The Deauville once symbolized the glamor and excitement of Miami. With a little help, the hotel could be brought back to life again. Bob Keeling.
5: You know, that stage is still there where the Beatles were on Sullivan. It's still there. It's still in the ballroom of the hotel that's falling apart day by day. I really hope that something can be done about the Deauville Hotel. The notion of knocking it down and you know putting up some sign or something, to me is a lousy idea. I think we have the chance to save it, and, and it's obviously much bigger than me, but the fact that we have that incredibly historic stage sitting there forgotten, you know, you think about the Ed Sullivan Theater where the Beatles played the first time. My God, it's a venerable landmark, and the Deauville is forgotten, and uh, I, I hope we do something about it before it's too late, because Florida played a critical part in the Beatles' year where everything just exploded for them, and, and it's time we recognize that, we do something about it, and the first step in, in that process, as far as I'm concerned, is save the Deauville. Hashtag save the Deauville.
6: For nearly a decade, Gary McKechnie has been campaigning to save the Doville and to place a historical marker there. His original vision was for the hotel to be restored by 2014, in time for the 50th anniversary of the Beatles' historic Ed Sullivan performance in the Doville Ballroom. Despite the efforts of Gary McKechnie, Bob Keeling, and others, the Doville is currently vacant and neglected. There's still a chance to save the Doville in time for the 60th anniversary in 2024. Gary McKechnie.
7: We're still talking about them. We're still talking about a place that they stayed at, a hotel that they stayed at. You don't talk about that unless it's George Washington slept here, the Beatles slept here. That's how important this is. And that's why I'm really pleased uh, that the city of Miami is starting to take a role and starting to push this forward where this hotel can be saved. And once it's saved, I'm gonna be paying for that historic marker that's gonna go in front of it, and I'm gonna book the Beatles tribute band that's gonna be playing there on opening night.
6: For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the often lively discussion on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Bendy Biassi and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Please stay safe and healthy and have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle.